Hi, welcome back to the Healing Through History podcast. This is your host, Sean Bundarger. The peak of the recent COVID-19 pandemic forced healthcare providers into a difficult ethical gridlock. How do physicians choose which patients to treat when essential supplies like ventilators are limited? What consolations could physicians offer families who cannot meet their loved ones in their final moments? In many horrific ways, the pandemic has magnified the importance of end-of-life care protocols in relieving the suffering of dying patients. End-of-life care may present some of the grimmest notions of medicine. Discussing death implicitly accepts the failure of medicine. No doubt, the concept of death sounds antithetical to the very curative purpose of medicine. However, palliative care during end-of-life comprises arguably the most important obligation of physicians. Treatments may fail and the prognosis may look abysmal in the course of care. But that does not necessarily mean that medicine as a system has completely failed the patient. Palliative care offers to attend the pain and emotional needs of a patient and to make the final moments all the more peaceful in an impossible time. In an unprecedented era where we are so frightfully reminded of our own mortality, Palliative care may be able to help physicians and patients cope with the current circumstances while setting the foundation for better post-pandemic healthcare. This week's episode is the first in a multi-part series exploring the history of palliative care and end-of-life care. Today, we'll set the stage for what I hope will be a conversation that endures far beyond my podcast. Death. Even saying the word sends a chill down our spines, perhaps reminding us of our own mortality, or serving as a solemn recollection of the pain we felt as loved ones passed away and went to a place unknown. We clench our fists in a gesture of defiance that we can somehow prevent that inevitability, prevent our descent into that place of eternal uncertainty. But how can we, as a society, challenge death. That responsibility has often been endowed upon the field of medicine. Our usual societal conceptualization of death no longer features our families helplessly encircling a dying loved one. Now we antagonize death. We conscript ambitious physicians to battle death with the fruits and full technological arsenal of modern medicine. And medicine, to its own credit, is certainly waging a successful war. Smallpox ravaged the 18th century and left thousands dead in its wake in colonial America. But it was eradicated in the 70s with the development of vaccines. Several other diseases like polio have similarly yielded the seemingly unstoppable force of medicine. Yet, for all the spectacles of biomedical innovation, death is and will always be a constant of healthcare. Despite the sensitivity of the topic, 
Death inevitably accompanies medicine and haunts practitioners of all eras and all cultures. But these conversations mostly occurred privately until certain medical cases and social movements launched the issue of end-of-life care into the public eye in the late 20th and early 21st century. Before we dive in, let's establish some vocabulary. There are two main types of euthanasia, active and passive. Active euthanasia, as the name suggests, involves actively ending a patient's life, such as by the injection of a lethal dose or drug by a physician. Generally, this is distinguished from physician-assisted suicide, where a physician might facilitate and hasten a patient's death, such as the prescription, but not the active injection or delivery of a lethal dose of a certain drug. Unlike active euthanasia, which is broadly illegal and actually considered murder in the US, physician-assisted suicide has actually been legalized in eight states currently, California, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, New Jersey, Maine, Vermont, and Hawaii. Physician-assisted suicide requires confirmation of a terminal diagnosis and confirmation that the patient is mentally competent in making this decision. Passive euthanasia, on the other hand, involves the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatments, such as taking someone off of life support or removing a feeding tube. Passive euthanasia is legal in all 50 states, of course granted that you have the patient's consent. And briefly to touch on the term of palliative care, palliative care is not restricted to the terminally ill. Palliative care is a holistic interdisciplinary principle that prioritizes quality of life over quantity of life. And it also allays the pain and suffering for patients. You can imagine how relevant this concept is, however, for the physical and psychosocial concerns specific to end of life patients, terminal patients. Hence the inherent connection between end-of-life care and palliative care. And generally, this end-of-life version of palliative care is known as hospice care. Hospice care can be delivered at specialized hospice care centers, but the practice can also be adapted in hospitals and even the homes of patients. Now that we've built our vocab, let's dive into the recent history of end-of-life considerations. Dr. Jack Kevorkian, nicknamed Dr. Death, was an American pathologist specializing in administering voluntary active euthanasia to terminal patients. He would create mercy machines, which administered a lethal dose with the press of a button for the patient. In Kevorkian's activism, he asserted a chilling conviction that euthanasia constituted the duty of all physicians. For the medical community, Kevorkian's argument struck the ethical core of what it means to be a doctor. To the shock of the entire nation, one such euthanasia administration aired on CBS's 60 Minutes in 1998. Usually, Kevorkian's patients would administer the dose themselves with these mercy machines, and they would test their consent. However, the ALS patient's paralysis on this 60 Minutes uh, episode forced Kevorkian to actively administer the lethal dose himself, for which he was later convicted. Thus, Kevorkian launched the initial right-to-die movement with great controversy, claiming that patients should retain as much control of their death as their life, hence right to die. But the impetus for the right to die movement did not come solely from physician advocates. At the age of 26, Terry Schiavo 
went into cardiac arrest at her home in Florida and soon fell into a persistent vegetative state. She lived off of life support for years amidst several legal battles between her spouse and her parents. Several attempts at rehabilitation through occupational therapy, physical therapy, and several experimental therapies failed. Terry's husband, Michael, wanted to cease her suffering by removing her feeding tube. But Terry's parents respectfully opposed Michael. So the case of Terry Shivo and the legal dispute between her parents and her husband, which was regarding the withdrawal of her feeding tube, again due to her persistent vegetative state, expanded the scope of cases where euthanasia could apply. Shivo's case also highlighted the ambiguity in which family members would be the surrogates in decision-making. And it also magnified overall questions of accountability in such cases. Shivo did not leave behind a living will or any other document that would dictate her wishes in a medical crisis to her physicians. Especially relevant to the case, the medical community could not even agree on whether Shivo's questionable state of consciousness actually qualified as living or as whole brain death. Shivo's feeding tube was removed and reinserted several times as Florida state legislators, including uh, Governor Jeb Bush, and the judicial system went vehemently back and forth on her case. Shivo's feeding tube was removed a final time on March 18, 2003, and she died two weeks later. Kevorkian and Shivo's narratives would revitalize a discussion on medicine's role in assisting terminal patients. Later advocacy for palliative care would conflict with that for euthanasia and hastening of death, sparking global debates on the benefits of these end-of-life care approaches. Reflective of the dissonance in the Shivo case, patient advocacy groups have similarly clashed around the morality of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide for terminally ill or permanently disabled patients. Organizations like Death or Dignity are challenging the medical orthodoxy to consider the darker repercussions of adhering to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm at all costs. These organizations, like that like dignity, clamor for physicians to consider that their patients have a right to die. After all, should a physician stand idly by the bedside of a terminal patient whose final breaths are spent in endless anguish? An anguish that transcends the capabilities of the permitted dosages of even the strongest pain-relieving drugs. At the same time, legalizing physician-assisted suicide or active euthanasia, which is actually legal now in countries like the Netherlands, may comprise a slippery slope. The Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network is another organization which is, of course, named after Terry Schiavo, while organizations like Death to Dignity present Schiavo's narrative as a testament to medicine's capacity and obligation to end a patient's suffering, the Life and Hope Network claims the removal of Shivo's feeding tube, which led to her death, to be a violation of her right to live. Furthermore, these advocates claim that the case set precedent for physicians removing and eventually mandating euthanasia to patients with severe cognitive disabilities. Especially given the specter of the history of eugenics in America, which included the institutionalization and sterilization of disabled populations, events which we may discuss in more detail in future episodes, that slippery slope is clear. Who actually gets to decide which patients get euthanized? 
And how can these questions be, re be reconciled across axes of race and socioeconomic status? However, at the heart of the Shivo case, two parties who equally loved Shivo struggled with an impossible decision. The aforementioned right to die and right to live organizations, despite all their ideological differences, are both promoting patients' early establishment of several documents like living wills, advanced medical directives, and DNR orders that all can facilitate such tough healthcare decisions for physicians and patient families. While the notion is certainly not featured on the brochures for the medical profession, Death is an inescapable part of medicine. I say this as an individual about to enter medical school myself. I feel unprepared and conflicted, and I would like that to change. End-of-life care is such a tabooed sect of medicine, of the ruthlessness of the COVID-19 pandemic, and its widespread effect on beleaguered hospitals may be forcing us to seriously consider it. How can medicine better reconcile the professional and personal dimensions of death as a medical event? We'll continue to explore this question in future parts of the series, and our journey may very well take us further back in time, perhaps to the time of the ancients. Thank you for listening.